Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Probably just freak out. <laughs> Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. On this episode, we're maybe a little late to the game, but we're going to talk to you about Kodak's recent price increases. Why'd they do it? How high are they going to get? And what the hell do we do now? But it's not just us who will be talking. We asked a few former guests and some friends of the show to share their thoughts with us. There's also the answering machine, Tiffin Sinclair, autochromes, and zine reviews. But first, how the hell are you? Well, <laughs> it's been sort of a hectic, crazy week, but... I've I've more or less enjoyed it. Uh, okay. Last the last episode, I talked to you guys a, a little bit about what I was be doing the next the next week, and I did some of those things, and I'm really happy about that. Oh, good! I Tell sold us. out of my expired zine completely. The book thing completely sold. No out. way! Yes, the last book went to Robert Elgato, who calls <gasps> in quite often. Oh, neat! So I was really happy it went to somebody like that. So thank yeah. you, Robert, and thank you everybody Absolutely. who who bought it. That was. Really wonderful. It was one of my favorite things that I've ever done. So, more importantly, I did watch Godzilla versus Hedorah. And uh, I've seen it before. I didn't realize I saw it before, which I'm not sure how I could have forgotten that. But somehow, <laughs> I wiped it from my mind. But I did see it, and it was a trip. I highly recommend it. Uh, if you're in America and have HBO Max or whatever they're calling it now, it's on there. Hmm. Other than that, I've been making cyanotypes, and I've been doing it badly. I don't know if it's me or if it's maybe old chemicals or or bad lighting or <laughs> are you what are you using I'm using I'm using really old photographers formulary chems Oh it's the same stuff that we had No that stuff is great No no it's good It's just old Did you mix all of it No I still have no. them separate How long do they last separately that's a good question, but I, I, I've had mine for way over a year before, and it's been fine. Really? But I put a couple layers on, and I make sure it's, like, in the dark. I don't I don't really know. I noticed you were doing some staining, though, too. So. I did. I did some tea staining. I would bleach it with sodium carbonate. Tell us about that. Okay, all these tutorials online tell you, we'll just mix up some sodium carbonate and some water. No measurements. <laughs> it's, so I just dumped a bunch of sodium carbonate in some water. And it bleached them right away. And then it said, well, then then stain them in tea. And they have a bunch of different teas you could use, black tea, green tea. I chose green tea because it doesn't stain the paper as much, but it turns the what used to be the, the blue into a very nice brown. They didn't tell you like how, how strong it should be or anything like that. So I just added a lot of tea bags. I okay. did learn that there is such a thing as too hot. Do, don't, don't put the paper in when it's uh, boiling. It, the paper screams. <laughs> Just frightening and terrifying. It's like a lobster. Oh, poor lobsters! No, don't don't eat lobsters. And, and you put it in there, and it, the I don't know if it soaks into the paper in ways that it wouldn't normally soak into the paper, but it, it was a bad experience. So I'm starting over. It says it's for a whole other project that I'm doing, and I'll talk about that when it's closer to ready. So I think I'm going to start over. Okay. So with the the staining. I get what you're doing. Okay. The, I never bleached my cyanotypes beforehand, though. I always just like 
soak them in whatever, you know, tea. Well, that would stain the paper. This stains, okay, what this does is it takes all well, of the blue. It stains all of it. Well, this takes all of the blue out. Okay. So you're left with what is basically looking like a blank piece of paper. Yes. So your image completely disappeared. I mean, you can kind of see it. Kind of scary though. Like, oh shit. <laughs> no, I think it's amazing. And then when you soak it, the tannins in the tea mm -hmm. attach themselves somehow or another to what used to be where the blue was. Oh. But does they don't attach themselves so much to the paper. This depends on the paper that you use and also uh, the tea that you use. I, I've noticed that black tea does stain the paper a bit more, which is why I chose green tea. Mm -hmm. You can also do it with coffee and wine and mm. uh, um, any, anything with tannin in it. Okay. So, huh. Fun. yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't love sienna types. I always say this. I always say I'm never going to do them again, and then I do them again. Well, this is for a project too, so always for a project. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like your cyanotypes. I think they're doing. I think they look great. Thank you so much. I'm and if uh, I'm doing negatives, I'm I'm doing four by five negatives on them, so like a contact print. And oh, wonderful. I'm I'm mostly enjoying the attempts, but we'll see. It's also that time of year again where I have to re-up my annual Flickr subscription. Mm. And it's also that time of year where I'm wondering why the hell am I still using Flickr? Mm. And they give you about a month to decide. So I have till I think December 1st, which is a lot less than a month now, uh, to decide whether uh, Flickr is part of my workflow and if it's still worth it. There are, I mean, I have a decent amount of followers and I'm following a decent amount of people on Flickr. I've got... Mm -hmm close to 6,000 photos up on Flickr. And mm -hmm. if you use the free account, you can only do a thousand. It's nice having a backup, but yeah, it's just like a public backup. And the price is about the same as any other backup, you know, but you can't store anything else there really. It's just mm -hmm. photos, but it is nice to have all that information. Like how did I develop this, this emulsion a decade yeah, I, ago? I do notice like if I have a film emulsion I've never used before, I will check on Flickr and type it in on the yeah. search bar and see what people got. It's such a useful tool sometimes. It really is. It does, it does drive me nuts though when I'm trying to find out like how someone developed it and they don't tell you how they developed it and you're just like, oh, this was like six years ago. There's no way if I comment, he's gonna remember. <laughs> or they give you like a little bit of the information. Just a tiny bit. He's like, oh, <laughs> I developed this in Rodinol. Like, you son of a bitch. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> you've gotten that far, so <laughs> what, what was it? <laughs> what was it? What was the time? One plus 50? Uh, what, what, what's going on here? Yeah. So, we have yes. problems. So, I don't know. What do you folks think? Should, should, uh, what, Flickr, worth it? I've been there for probably 14 years. Mm -hmm. I still don't know if it's worth it. I'm not sure was if there, I'm ever going to know. Was there a horse named Flickr? Flicka. Oh, okay. My, My friend bad. Flicka. Okay, gotcha. Anyway, what have you been up to? <laughs> I have, uh, I've been up to quite a lot lately. Okay. <laughs> I am not an organized person and I'm very sporadic. So random things happen all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, as Eric knows, he can look behind and see I have like a whole brand new like hutch <laughs> with all my cameras in it. It's true. <laughs> so I've discovered like Facebook Marketplace is kind of like the new Craigslist, but that means that you have to be on Facebook, of course. But you know, Facebook is like, is basically like a novella, but like with your friends and family and stuff. It's it it's a train wreck, but 
kind of fun. You know, you got to just like try not to let it get to you. <laughs> Too Disagree. <bad. laughs> but uh, I've been going on there and looking at free stuff. And I just like I found this down the street. Someone was getting rid of it. And I was like, oh, my God, this would be like a perfect thing to put my cameras in. I did bring that home by myself. It's huge, by the way, you guys. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a two-story <laughs> two-story hutch. I've, I'm noticing, I'm looking at in the back, I'm noticing there is a piece of scotch tape yep. holding the doors closed. Because the ghost keeps opening them. It's haunted. Now, now it all just makes sense. That's why it was okay. free. It's it's a haunted hutch. <laughs> it is. It's haunted. It's haunted. Okay. Okay. So I've had this situation before because in my dining room where my record player is, I have kind of like a credenza type thing. Is that haunted too? Yes. Oh. That one I got from a old uh, picture framer in town. They sold his building and made it into some like gentrified bullshit. I can't remember. Uh, but his old workstation was this like old credenza type thing. And he used to smoke in there. So it, it smelled like cigarettes for like the first month that I had it. But it has like little locks, lock and key on all of the little like openings. So I have to take off one of the doors and take it to the locksmith in town. And I basically have to do the same thing with this. I'm just going to undo one of these and literally walk it in and be like, hi, will you make me a key so the ghost can't open this anymore? Yeah. What if the ghost has a key? Uh, well, then I, the, I mean, the not very strong because the scotch tape is working as of right now. Mm, very true. It's a good thing you don't have stronger ghosts. <laughs> I know. I don't want to say too many bad things because they're going to get me. <laughs> well, then we should move on. What, what else? What else have you been up to? Oh, my goodness. I got a bunch of paper, like Ilford paper. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I'll be printing. <laughs> I was hoping to print like this week, but I don't think it's going to happen. I reorganized my my living room again. <laughs> I got a clown painting that was like kind of magnificent. I don't know. I've just been kind of... It looks like Nicolas Cage in clown makeup. Oh my God. He like has to ruin it too. Cause I'm like, oh my God, I got this like amazing like clown painting. Cause I have this thing about clowns. I like them. I like clowns, but not that I like love clowns. I just like them. And I don't, I don't hate them. How about that? I don't hate clowns. And I get really annoyed when people say they hate clowns. Okay. Like it's a thing. Like it's like, oh God, I hate clowns. They're so scary. And I'm just like, are you saying that because you actually hate clowns or are you saying that because that's like what you're supposed to say? Because everybody says that. Is this like in some some weird defense of the clowning community? Kind of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think they've like, <laughs> they've had enough. <laughs> All right. No, I, 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 would, I would tend to agree, I think. <laughs> and the painting is beautiful. It's good tones, colors. It's kind of sad and it's wonderful. And then I show it to Eric and he's like, oh, it looks like Nicolas Cage. And now that's all I fucking see. But it does. <laughs> it looks like Nicolas Cage in clown makeup. We'll, we'll post a picture on our show notes of this. Absolutely. Yeah. You guys have to see it. It's really, uh, if you haven't seen it already, it's, it's exciting. Oh, also one last thing. Okay. I don't really mention this as much as I should, but once an episode comes out, I get a lot of like people writing me about specific things in the episode. And okay. it makes me so happy because I feel like I got a lot from Dev Party and the last episode. Uh, it could be for some particular reasons on the main episode, which we'll talk about. But thank you, everybody, for hanging out with us. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Wait, what else are you going to do? As our listeners will know, unlike 
our dev parties, the main show is pretty heavily edited especially the more scripted portions of it. With usually around three hours of raw audio, the editing process takes up to eight, maybe even 10 real-time hours. It's true. It really, it really does. <laughs> A lot of what we do couldn't be done without editing. Take this for example. Right now, I'm going to say some incredibly offensive, horrible things that would get me absolutely canceled. Right now. But you didn't hear a word of it because of the magic of editing. Speaking of editing, in the last episode, I fucked up and accidentally left in about a minute and a half of stuff that should have been edited out. I mean, only several hundred people heard it, so it's not a big deal, but it's still. Yeah, we both got messages. Uh, so in it, you heard us struggling to get through an especially Victorian portion of the piece we did on CDVs. We got quite a number of messages about it and all of them were actually really like encouraging and understanding, kind of like, hey, do you know this is in here? Is this a bit? Like, what's going on? Yeah, people <laughs> thought we were, we were leaving it in to make us more human. It's like a peek behind the curtain and we sounded like real people for once or or something. It was, it was weird. I, I don't think they actually- Okay, said. but the stingers in the beginning of the episode and the end are, is that- it, it is, but I don't think a lot of people, you know, when you start listening to a podcast, you don't really listen to the first couple of seconds because you're getting your shit together and all that. And yeah. a lot of people will, I'm sure a lot of people turn the podcast off during the credits. Gotcha. So I'm betting that a lot of people, I'd say half, don't even know that the stinger exists. Oh, and interesting. So half of you listening right now are going, what the fuck's a stinger? <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> We're not going to tell you. You're missing out. That's like the best part. <laughs> And that's all real. <laughs> They're all real things. <laughs> I'm supposed to listen to each and every episode before it posts. Well, time got away and it kind of bit me in the ass real good this time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I felt really bad about this, the mistake, like all week, kind of like nervously anxious about it. I was like worried and I, I was disappointed in myself for not, for not catching it, obviously, um, but I have finally decided to let it go and be okay about Clearly. it. Clearly. Um, accidents happen. And of course, I will try to do better about actually listening to the entire podcast. <laughs> that would be nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, the two years I've done this podcast has been an amazing experience and a great learning experience, too. I am proud of my progress with my dyslexia and my public speaking. I never thought I would ever do anything like this. It's just... <laughs> I have a wonderful podcast partner. He is so patient with me and I appreciate it because, you know, I'm a person and I get frustrated. And when someone is correcting you over and over, it's hard not to feel like you want to murder them, you know? I mean, yeah, I, I feel that sometimes that you want to murder me. I get that. <laughs> I'm very murderable. Kind of. So some days are better than others. I'm just thankful for my amazing pod daddy who is so awful. patient with me. <laughs> so fucking awful. So what you heard was pretty much how it goes every episode for us, especially like the the features. We try really hard to produce a sleek and professional sounding podcast. And sometimes we even pull it off. Last episode, it, oh, it was embarrassing. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> so we're, I, I guess we're sorry. I, I don't know. It's free. So kind of sorry. But we are just human, apparently. These things will happen, and, and hopefully they won't happen too much. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, the interesting thing I had, the first person that sent me a message actually had a radio show. He was so nice about it because he was like, oh, this is definitely not the worst thing I ever did. That's for sure. Oh, it wasn't the worst thing we ever did either. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, we've, yes, we we've won't go into. We've done some bad things. We, we've, yeah, we've. Uh, <laughs> but we're just not going to point all of them out. We'll just point this one out since so many people. That is right. This is the worst that it. you've heard. And uh, yeah. It was it was not a lot of fun. We're sorry that um, you had to see us like that. It's like watching mom and dad fight for the first time. Yeah, it, it kind was, of felt like that a little bit. Yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> not everything is roses here, all through a lens sometimes. Uh, oh. uh, I mean, for as long as we've worked together, I think we're doing pretty damn good. Well, the longer we work together, the worse we get. Well, I mean, it's hard to work with somebody. Yeah, you know, we have different personalities. You're. <laughs> better at most of this stuff and i am kind of all over the place so yeah i wonder (laughs) who's more of a pain in the ass well how about you the listeners at home which one of us do you think is more of a pain in the ass (laughs) eric for sure you guys come on here team b over here (laughs) okay should we that's a good take it was good i think so what do you think i think it's fine Each episode, we put on our house slippers and our cozy cardigans and check our answering machine. We ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. And Vanya, what is the weird-ass question this time around? Tell us about your film photographically related animal encounters. Yeah, (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) Well, I am too. I was excited and I was expecting uh, kind of a lot more and we got four. (gasps) Oh no, yeah. that's it? Yeah, so like, what's up listeners? Do you just not go outside? Are you all <laughs> studio photographers? <laughs> Maybe, but then you have to have like, like rats or something, right? Right, everybody has rats, don't they? Just me? <laughs> okay, anyway, so let's, uh, <laughs> hmm. I wish I was joking. Push the button. Okay. No. I saw you two guys earlier at the Kajuma truck, and you were eating your ice cream like little boys, and I thought, those guys aren't so tough. They're eating ice cream. What a bunch of swell guys. I saw you eating ice cream, pal. Oh, don't you deny it. You were eating an ice cream cone. Oh, you're bad now. You're bad now, but you're eating an ice cream cone. That's the shit you can't hide, you know? Ice cream eating motherfucker. That's what you are. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Vanya and Eric. It's Liz down here in Texas with all the animals, the desert animals. I've seen a lot uh, around my tent, around my campsites, but as far as animals I've seen while shooting, uh, there was a snake that was weaving around (laughs) my tripod and then my tent. Um, It was non-venomous. I can't remember the name of it, but it was really cute, so I wasn't too too scared. Um, And then... Recently, at night, I'm pretty sure I saw the eyes of a mountain lion. Uh, The next day when I was setting up my tripod, I saw tracks that looked like big cat tracks. So, it's always exciting down here. I am okay with a snake. Okay. I'm not okay with big cats. Yeah, big cats are scary. Yeah. (laughs) Big cats are scary. There's very little chance they'll attack you. Very little. Yeah. Yeah. But they will stalk you for miles and miles. And that's Which is terrifying. So, yeah, so unsettling. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like that. No. Uh, I do like to watch when Liz goes out 
on vacation because she will document every single animal that she comes across, even the scary wasps that like kicked her out of that abandoned um, building the last uh, time she was out shooting. I just, ugh, I adore her so much. Liz, you're the best. And also the most badass, because I bet you she probably, if had to, would have grabbed the snake and strangled the mountain lion with it because she's a badass. <laughs> so I talked to her a little bit since she sent this, and she okay. wrote a little bit more kind of about this. And she says, of thinking about the snake and the tripod, uh, I had just taken the Noblex photo of myself at dusk by the campfire, then saw the snake in a small bush while looking for scorpions with my black light. Because... Why, why Why wouldn't you do that? Yes, of course. It went over to my tripod, checked it out, then went over to my tent, checked it out, then headed back into the desert. Hmm. But I remembered a different snake story from Liz. Do you remember there she, she posted some pictures maybe a month and a half, two months ago? So she sent the picture. It's a snake coiled up next to her, her, uh, her tent. Tent. I do remember that. The close-up of the coiled snake was another trip. A young diamondback. It's a rattlesnake. Decided to sleep by my tent. I got in on the other side and all was well. So she slept next to a diamondback rat, like knowingly. Mm -hmm. So when she posted the picture, I thought she woke up and, oh my God, there's a snake. It was, oh my God, there's a snake. Hey, buddy. Yeah. Let's you curl up. sleep here? Okay, I'll put, I'll put my head next to yours. <laughs> oh my God. So I wonder if like the snake snoring kept her up or maybe it was the other way around. Wow. That's intense. Also amazing. Hey all, this is Dan Tree. My Instagram is Dan Tree Photo. Just calling in with my animal encounters. Um, the one I can remember particularly was when I was out shooting a large format in my neighborhood and was pretty focused on what I was shooting and under the dark cloth. And when I peeked my head out, a uh, dog um, had gotten up to me and went all crazy, didn't know what I was about. And I reacted by flapping the dark cloth like a giant bird which scared the dog just enough for the owner to come running up and rescue me from getting bitten. So that was uh, loads of fun and knocked a couple of years off my life, I feel like. Anyways, uh, thanks. <laughs> I, ugh, Eric, Eric hates dogs, so go on. I don't even know what to say to that because I don't know what to address. Like the flapping like a bird is oh my amazing. God. Okay, yes, that reminds me of the Halloween costume. I think I like added to my story. It was like this lady that dressed up like a bird. And it's that one bird that has the blue like stripe on the inside. And she okay. like does this like little dance thing or something. Or no, it was a guy. He's like a bird and he dances. Okay. It's like a, it's a special type of bird. All right. You know, that, that dances. You okay. guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the dancing bird. Okay. <laughs> so that's what that reminded me of. Okay. That's awesome. Um, dogs have have kind of ruined a ton of pictures for me. More than any other animal, if, if I'm out there shooting and I see like literally any other animal except for, you know, probably like a, a mountain lion or something like that, mm -hmm. I'll continue shooting. It's not a big deal. But dogs, you know, I don't go on private property, but dogs don't understand property lines. So if you're anywhere near private property that a dog is protecting, they'll fuck you up. And they're, they're, they're pretty okay with it. I've nearly hit a lot of dogs that are stupid enough to try to take down a car. <laughs> I've never hit one, thankfully. I don't I don't like dogs, but I don't want them, you know, I don't want them dead or anything. That's just horrible. I know. You're so mean. Wait, no, that's not mean. <laughs> it's not mean at all. I always carry dog treats and food in my car. Funny story. 
when I, last time I went to Mexico, there was like this like skinny chihuahua at a gas station randomly somewhere. And I was like, I have a greenie. It's like greenies are kind of like treats, but also for, like healthy for your teeth or something. And I went to give it to the dog and the dog like, l- like looked at it, like sniffed it and then just walked away and was like, fuck this thing. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have encounters with dogs when you're out? I guess you do a lot of like water and, and city stuff. So uh, that time that I was on my way to Texas. Yeah, I was in. Oh, yeah. Bowie. But well, that was a positive experience, though, wasn't it? <laughs> It was because I didn't run. I just walked back to my car and threw a loaf of bread outside. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I like how you you were you're in your car and you were safe, but you're just like just in case. Here's some yeah. Bread. Here's some bread. <laughs> <laughs> just confuse looked, the dog. He looked hungry. He was like I felt bad because he was probably like an American like bulldog slash pit bull mix mm-hmm. normal dog that you usually see and. He was a little dirty, and they just had him outside, and he was free. Yeah. Uh, he, I think he rules the town, honestly. So, you just never know, like, if you walk up to an animal, what what's going to happen. And um, I actually had some severe damage done to my face as a very young child. I was attacked by my neighbor's dog when I was two years old, when I lived in Mount Shasta. Kind of sucked. <laughs> hey, everybody. My name's John Michael. My most memorable animal-related film photography encounter was in Costa Rica a few years ago. Uh, My wife and I were volunteering at an animal sanctuary, and I was able to take some pictures of a baby three-toed sloth with my Rolleiflex. So that was pretty memorable. Take care. Bye-bye. Best subject ever. Like, stay still. You know what? Don't even have to tell you that. Just just do what you're saying. Do you. It knows exactly what to do. <laughs> oh, sloths are so amazing. I love sloths. <laughs> I, have you, you've seen them, right? Yes. Yeah, in Costa Rica? Yeah, I, um, I actually looked for one every single day and could not find one. And then the last day, there was like this gardener that was gardening the street. And he's like, <laughs> oh, have you seen the sloth? And I'm like, where? He's like, it's been there for like five days. He's right here. I had no idea. I was like, oh my gosh, I've been looking everywhere. I haven't seen him. Crazy. I've never seen one. I've never been to Costa Rica. <gasps> you have but, to go see um, one. They, they seem fucking weird. Just no, weird. Amazing. Can we go to the animal sanctuary that he's talking about? I mean, I would assume so. I'd volunteer. That would be so amazing. Have at it. Hey, this is Jess. Um, The last couple of years I've been working on a project of going and photographing a specific body of water repeatedly each month for a whole year. And the last few months I have been able to take with our puppy. He is a one-year-old pit bull mix. And he's changed my perspective on what I'm looking at. I usually focus on broad landscapes, Um, you know, framing the water in just how I want it. And he's very much focused on what is hidden around the water, specifically dead things. He finds a lot of dead things. Um, But it's making me see a lot of the details that I have maybe missed before um, trying to look at things a little too broadly. Um, I'm at Moon Sweeney on Instagram. Thanks for the podcast. I love it. Yeah, dogs like to roll in dead things. <laughs> it's nice to have a change of perspective, though. 
Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. It's when I uh, I gave one of my cameras to uh, one of Marley's friends and I just developed some film for him. And scanning them, it's so it's it's kind of cool just to see what like what they want to photograph and how they photograph it. It's completely different. And I could see that like when I walked with Marley when she was little, she would focus on like the randomest like leaves on the floor for five minutes. Like, oh, this is so interesting. You know, it really slows you down and makes you see things uh, much differently. Yeah. So that's cool that you can see that with your animal as well. Yeah, I would. I mean, obviously, I'm not a I'm not a big dog fan. And I think a cat would be a very different, a very different experience in the wild. Yeah. I'm a cat person. I wonder what Mosey would do. He would he would probably just find a bird and chirp at it for a while. That's like, like that? Exactly like that. Yeah. Exactly. The weird like mouth thing that they do. Yeah, he would do that. What why do they do that? I think that's I think that's how they normally make noises. Like the meows aren't not that they're not natural, but the, the theory or one of the theories is that uh, cats meow, mimic babies crying so that we'll do shit for them. The manipulative little bastards. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> kind of does. So we will talk about our encounters on the next dev party. Yes. Like we've normally been doing. Mm-hmm. But before then, Vanya, what is the question for next time around? Tell us about your bad habits. What other things do you do while developing film? We know that you're only supposed to develop film while you're developing film, but we also know you do a lot more than that. Fess up, it's confession time. In our main feature, we'll be talking about the price increases of professional film from Kodak. Kodak has dominated the film market with its first color film available in 1935, called Kodachrome. We all kind of remember that. It was an okay song. It was also the first successful commercially produced color film using the subtractive color method. Ooh. It used blue-green and red-orange. It was sort of a simplified version of cyan, magenta, yellow, and black of today. That's the CMYK process. But before Kodak blew our minds, two French brothers invented a way to make color positive on glass plates. There were a few different people that had some success as well, but we're going to focus on the autochrome. The autochrome process was invented by Auguste and Louis Lumiere in 1903 and manufactured by the Lumiere brothers in 1907. Vanya, impeccable French. Brava. (laughs) Autochromes produced a positive image, like a slide. By using backlighting, if you backlit or held up to the sun or something like that, you'd be able to see a full-on color photo. So the autochrome was a pre-coated glass plate with layers that they called screens for some reason. This glass screen had three translucent colors made of transparent grains of red-orange, green, and violet, which were made of potato starch grains. And there are about four million such little grains per square inch. To fill in the spaces between those little grains, little colored grains, they used black carbon dust. And then they pressed it all together with 5,000 pounds of pressure. And lastly, a silver gelatin photosensitive panchromatic emulsion, like the same stuff that's on film, was applied. The plate was exposed with the potato starch color screens closest to the lens. White light would hit the color grains and serve as a filter 
When it hit the positive photosensitive layer, it would react and shine through where the original colors were present. Strong light was a must for this process to produce vibrant colors, with almost minute-long exposures necessary. A great way to stand out in autochrome is to wear contrasting colors of the greens of nature, with vibrant reds, whites, and blues. The Photographic News noted in 1908... When the effect of relief is joined to a lifelike presentation in color, the effect is quite startling in its reality. It is not easy to imagine what the effect of anything of this kind would have been on our ancestors, and witchcraft would have been but a feeble, almost complimentary term for anything so realistic and startling. One of the most popular autochromes is a collection of photographs of Christina in red, shot in 1913 by Marvin O'Gorman. You are probably familiar with the photo, and if not, definitely check it out. It is stunning and a good example of how vibrant the reds could be produced in autochromes. By 1913, the Lumiere factory was cranking out 6,000 plates a day in various sizes. Due to the complexity of manufacturing them, they were sold in, in boxes of four instead of the more common dozen monochrome plates. Autochromes were mostly taken by amateur photographers, and they were more or less a novelty. Like daguerreotypes, each autochrome plate is a -a one-of-a-kind original. They couldn't even be copied until the invention of color film, because the little multicolored potato starch grains were unique to each plate, kind of like a fingerprint. The autochrome process dominated color photography for nearly 30 years until around 1932, when the trend was geared more towards film instead of the unwieldy glass plates. The Lumieres did produce a sheet film version in 1932, which they marketed under the name Film Color. Unfortunately, the timing was off because other manufacturers, (coughs) Kodak, found a way to get rid of the filtered screens and invented a new and improved multi-layer films such as Kodachrome. We can't make ourselves anyway. We can't make autochromes today. Not easily. (laughs) We would need that that 5,000 pounds of pressure. Yeah. Well, if you look up, there's some people that tried to to make them. Oh, really? Yeah. And then also too, like getting those colors, like though getting the blue is like really hard. You could use newer like okay. colors, obviously, but if you were trying to do it like the old way, it would be a little bit more difficult. So um, you had a glass plate, and then they put some glue down, some adhesive, and then yes. they sprinkled the three different colors of mm-hmm. potato starch, mm-hmm. and then they pressed it really, really hard, and that mm-hmm. would, like, I guess, what flatten the grains so much that it made them transparent. Yeah, because they were so, yeah, they were like microscopic. Yeah, and so each of them act, acted like tiny little filters. Yes. It's just the interesting part is that the emulsion was basically facing you instead of facing the subject in the camera. Well, because you you had to shoot through the filters. Yeah. Love that. I think that's so fascinating. And then it makes sense because when you view the the actual uh, autochrome, you have to put it up like the glass up to light or they would have uh, dioscopes with mirrors, kind of like... When you go to Magic Mountain and get your picture taken and you get the little scope thing to, to peep <laughs> peep the picture, you know? It's, it's very similar to that, yeah. Yeah, Now, this was, like they would produce a, like a positive out of this, but yes. it was regular black and white emulsion, so you would do the reversal method. It was a reversal method of black and white, but the grains of starch behind it would shine through in color. They're just, if you haven't seen what these look like, you got to look online. They're so beautiful. They're absolutely gorgeous. It'd be really fun for someone to make this again. I mean, we can, you can press 5,000 pounds of pressure 
pretty easily. I think it's more of the sprinkling of the potato starch that might be the issue. Maybe. Maybe? I don't I don't really know. I mean, I would think it would like some sort of press obviously would yeah. be necessary, but yeah, I don't know. We're still making wet plate and tin types and I mean, hey, dude, if they get rid <laughs> get rid of color film, maybe we'll just go back and start doing autochromes as well. Maybe we will. And now for something completely Tiffin. All right, gang squad, I have a confession to make. Now, some of you might disown me. I may get banned from joining any and all forthcoming film photography groups within the Metasphere. Heck, I even run the risk of being stripped for my self-ascribed RB girl slash boy title. But I gotta be real. I can deny it no longer. I'm going 100% digital. Cue super dramatic music as we segue into the actual confession because this was all a charade. No, but seriously, the real confession here is that I did not do anything film photography related this past week. I didn't pick up a camera. I did not archive negatives. I didn't even take the rolls from my coworkers' portrait shoot to my local lab. The Fromex probably thinks I want to break up with them. But yeah. Work was mega chaotic this week. We had a few projects we needed to close out, and I had a really important deadline to meet. I'm hoping that goes well, so I can share the news with all of you in the future, because y'all are my friends, and I love you. But yeah, I'm aware that we're not required to take pictures every single day of our lives, or actively engage in a task that is photography-related, but when you're so accustomed to scanning negatives at least once a week, or going out on a breezy photo walk to wrap up your day, or fuck, even sequencing images for your imaginary photo book, on the weeks when you're consumed by other endeavors, you sort of feel like you neglected to feed or cultivate your creative side. I'm one of those people who is like very extra, i.e. probably neurotic, and I operate with the mentality that everything is a slippery slope, meaning that if I fail to keep up with something, I feel like I'm at risk of just falling off the horse completely, you know, like losing interest or practice, things like that. Granted, this isn't the case for a lot of you, which is good. But this past week, in order to offset the possibility of falling on my ass and slipping down that slope, I gravitated towards photo books. I defaulted to two of my favorites, the first being Igor Samolet's Be Happy, which follows a group of Russian youths who are portrayed as living in a state of perpetual celebratory bliss. And by youths, I mean young adults. I would not rate it E for everyone because there is some nudity and imagery of drug use, but it's good. Samolette is so adept at capturing debauchery in such a tasteful manner, and the way the book was sequenced is just absolute chef's kiss. The second book was Fuck Me by Josh Kern, which is basically a toned-down version of Be Happy, except that instead of Russian youths, you have German ones. Aside from the photographs, what I really like about this book is that it's pocketable. So when I was at work, I would go on my lunch, and I would pop it out and peruse. I'm not sure how most of you consume photo books, but I tend to use them as a mental exercise. Again, that's probably just me being neurotic, but like, I look at an image and then I really try to get into the artist's head. I want to figure out what aspect of the scene prompt them to actuate the shutter. And then as I go along, I try to make mental notes of the noticeable themes and I feel like it's a good way to try and learn to see how they see. I'm well aware that a photographic eye cannot be taught, but I think it can be somewhat conducive to helping you develop various styles of your own photography, 
especially if you're still trying to attempt to figure out which styles suit you and your creative eye best. Ideally, and when I have the liberty to do so, I usually go through a photo book and then I attempt to emulate the artist's style. Again, just as an exercise. If I struggle to see similar images, that's how I know a certain style isn't for me. That's how I learned that street photography is not my forte. Like, I do not give a shit. I will take a picture of whomever I want if I think it's worthy of photographing, barring children, of course, but I really struggled to come out with anything truly interesting. Or if there was something interesting, I just couldn't see it. So there you have it. Photo books. They were my saving grace this week by keeping the old creative juices flowing in a somewhat uninvolved and disengaging manner, I guess? The next time you're unable to pick up a camera, whether it's for a week, month, or however long, here's hoping that a photo book might help you along the way. Later, homies. Kodak recently announced that starting in January 2022, they'd be raising the prices on nearly all of their film. Well, they didn't exactly announce, they emailed the stores who buy directly from them, and the news leaked out. Now, this increase follows a roughly 20% increase from last year, and a similar increase the year before that, and a 10% price increase for 2018. To put things in a bit of perspective, a five-pack of Portra in 120 cost $29 in 2018, which is kind of crazy to think about right now. As of now, that same five pack is $55. So after some math, come January, that same pack will be closing in on $70. In less than four years, the price of Portra will have more than doubled. And quite a lot of film has. Since our wages haven't doubled and inflation is hovering around 5%, which is a lot for inflation, it sort of begs the question, what the hell, Kodak? Unlike in previous years, Kodak has, at least at the time of this recording, not issued an official press release to explain the reasons for this most recent price increase. Kodak may have their reasons, and these reasons could even be legitimate. But even if Kodak's true production and labor costs have doubled in the past four years, many film shooters might not be able to keep up. Soon, some tough decisions will need to be made. So we got to wondering, what do some of the friends of the show have to say about the film increases? How are they dealing with it? And how will it affect their work going forward? We talked to Brandy, film diary of a redhead, Charlie, casual science Camigula, Danielle, girl with too many cameras, Robleski, Hannah Grace, Jamie Maldonado, and Kat Swansea. But f- before we get to them, Vanya, just in general, how are you feeling about the price increases? I'm not excited about the increase, but if it's necessary to keep jobs and film in production, I will suck it up. Fair enough, fair enough. I'm, I'm trying to keep a very level, rational outlook on this. I'm not there with the pitchfork, and I'm, I'm probably not going to be. My wondering is like, okay, where is this going? Where are, we, where are we going with this, Kodak? I expect some price increases, at least to keep up with inflation. But as Brandy pointed out when we spoke with her, the amount is wild. I think the only thing I'm surprised or I guess shocked and saddened by is the amount of increase that is going on. I noticed on the sheet that Kodak sent out that TMAX 400, the price of that was being increased by 52%. Most of them were around like you know, 16% to like 22%, a lot, but not like, like, oh my God, what the hell? 
but 52% price increase on T-Max in 120. That's weird. Yes. <laughs> to the point where like, maybe it's a typo? Yes, using T-Max or any type of film that has that much of an increase will be basically only used for VIP circumstances as far as I'm concerned. VIP? Yeah, like very important picture. Oh, I see. <laughs> You know, on one hand, film is getting to be a lot more expensive than it used to be. But what's the alternative? Um, I'm less bothered by Kodak's price increase simply because everything has gotten more expensive during the pandemic. And I'm honestly just grateful that they're continuing to make film, unlike Fuji. Kat brings up a really good point. While Kodak is getting more expensive, it's Fuji who keeps <laughs> discontinuing emulsions, just literally just cutting us off completely cold. They do have press releases when they do discontinue a film, which is which is the bare minimum that you can do, I guess. I guess. But I'm, you know, at this point and for the years now, I've been wondering if Fuji's even producing film anymore. So Yeah, who knows? Who knows? They've discontinued like what? I mean, Kodak really hasn't discontinued anything, have they? Kodak? Kodak. Well, I mean, they discontinued um, Actachrome and then brought it back. Sure. My concern is if we don't purchase new emulsions, will Kodak follow suit? But we also talked to Blue Moon out of Portland. There's a store in Portland. They have an online presence as well. Great follow on Instagram, too. They do a lot of history stuff. They reminded us that maybe we're just never happy. And they didn't quite say that, but, you know, <laughs> that's sort of the gist of it. And I can't say that I disagree. What do we want? Do we want more expensive film or no film at all? I remember many years ago when Polaroid discontinued their film before Impossible came in, and there was a very strong prevalent thought that people said, well, why didn't they just raise their prices instead of discontinuing it? You know, I'd rather pay more for Polaroid film than have no Polaroid film. I subscribe to that philosophy that I'd rather have more expensive Kodak film than no Kodak film. The discontinuations and the price hikes don't, they just don't always seem to make sense. They really don't, especially since we're thinking that there's a big film resurgence. There may not be, but there does seem to be. I mean, maybe I'm in my own world, maybe. probably. But as Charlie puts it, the price increases in general kind of boggle my mind because film is seeing such an incredible resurgence yet they keep continuing to discontinue stock and then raise the price of the film that is available. That really doesn't make any sense to me. If there's more people who want it, wouldn't you want to have more of it instead of having less options that cost more? It doesn't really add up to me. The reasons given, and especially not given, by Fuji and to an extent Kodak don't always make sense. I mean, there's the discontinuations that we just mentioned by Fuji, and, you know, I'm wondering still, are they even making film anymore? But I've been wondering that for years. And the answer is probably yes. But we don't know. And it's weird that, like, the second biggest film manufacturer in the world, we're even quest we're questioning if they're, if, they're, if they're even making film. Well, because they, remember when they discontinued Acros? Yes, which was bonkers. It was <laughs> yeah, the only black and white that. film they had. Yes. They started making it again. Kind of, right? They have it again. It's a, it's Acros 2, and I'll make an electric boogaloo joke here. It's made in England by, by Harmon, the same folks mm. who make Ilford. Ilford, yeah. Huh. It's not an Ilford film. It is 100% Fuji's formulation. It is 100% Fuji's film. But in all of this time, somewhat recently, Kodak has reintroduced Ektachrome, like you said, and reintroduced P3200. Most importantly, do we trust the companies to be straight with us? Fuji is shrouded in mystery, and Kodak, well, 
The past few years have been incredibly odd for them as a company. Remember when they had a cryptocurrency <laughs> and nearly became a drug manufacturer? <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Danielle also spoke to this. I think it's always good for us as the consumer to be skeptical of anything that major corporations tell you. So while I, I, I really hope that they're telling us the reality of the situation, I, I do wonder a little bit how much they're being transparent of this really being driven by the cost of materials and labor shortage and, and manufacturing issues. And just where is Kodak going with this? I get that Kodak is a business. Their job is to make money, but something seems a bit off. And we heard from Anna, and she agreed. If we're increasing the price so much that it makes film unaccessible to a large variety of photographers, I don't know how that ensures that the future of film will continue in a strong way. I think Kodak would have some answers for Hannah. I mean, they're the ones that have the answers, but they haven't said anything about this. It's a little weird. It's weird for Kodak, honestly. It's a very Fuji thing to do. In the past, like last year, they mentioned supply chain expenses. Mm -hmm. Fine. To ensure the future of film, which is kind of an amorphous thing. It doesn't actually mean anything. But yeah, what kind of future is all of this making? I think all around, most awesome listener of all, Jaya, put it best, and I couldn't agree more. If Kodak is raising their prices because of increased labor and manufacturing and materials costs, then I guess I'm okay with that. If they're raising prices because they need some cash flow to fix their chronic supply chain issues and make certain that their films are in stock more often, then I guess I'm okay with that. If they are raising prices because they need some cash for R&D to bring back some films that they've discontinued, then I guess I'm okay with that. But if Kodak is seeing with Fujifilm basically pulling out of the film business that they are about to have a virtual monopoly on color film and they are raising their prices to take advantage of that, thinking that we are a completely captive audience, well, then fuck Kodak. Yes, but is that what they're doing? Is Kodak seeing a future monopoly hmm. and taking advantage of it? I don't know. I think it's maybe a little early to say anything like that. We don't know what Fuji's doing. Maybe Kodak does. It's you know, it's a company that's run by a lot of very smart dudes. So Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I never really thought that us personal film shooters really made a difference. We, I I really think it's more about the movie industry, to be honest. It is. And also, as far as Kodak goes, they just released their third quarter reports, and I read the entire report. What? Um, of course you did. Guess what wasn't mentioned? What? Film. Not a word. To, to Kodak film, it, it financially does not matter. So what matters? Everything else they're doing. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah, Kodak's a big company. It's it's yeah. Kodak Alaris and Kodak Professional is the you know the front for that is of the course. company that is doing the film. It is under the umbrella of Kodak. It's just mm -hmm. not really mentioned all that much. And I'm sure we'll have some people commenting about like how that's all set up. I don't fully understand how Kodak mm -hmm. is set up. Sometimes I'm not sure Kodak fully understands how they're set up, but mm -hmm. they certainly don't focus on film. Their their focus is not film at this point. Not even a little bit, you know, that, that's where they are as a company. And that's, that's, we're just gonna have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. But for the, the portion of Kodak that does produce film, I think Jaya might be right that we, we kind of are as a film community, a captive audience. They, well, you know, Fugazi, 
right? Fugazi produced like five great, amazing albums in a row. And by the time they put out their like fifth or sixth album, we were just like, yes, anything Fugazi does is amazing. Fugazi could produce an album exclusively made of fart noises and we would absolutely buy it and be like, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> Best work ever. And so I think Kodak might be at that point. They can do, as far as film goes, no wrong. And they mm -hmm. hold us in their in their thrall. Now, socially, uh, we've had some problems with Kodak. <laughs> it probably has not affected their sales. <laughs> no, definitely not. I've always come to the conclusion that we're benefiting because of the film industry and that they only make film because of the film industry and we just get we get it because of that <laughs> and as soon as that cuts off we're done yeah i mean there's some directors tarantino who's probably going to be stopped you know going to stop making movies at some point soon uh and there's a few other directors that that love shooting on film you also have like but you also have the problem that digital can be made to look very much like film like the movie the lighthouse Mm -hmm. which if you guys haven't seen it, please, please see it. A lot of that was shot on double X and a lot yes. of it was shot digital. And mm -hmm. I defy you to figure out which parts were which because they did a really <laughs> damn good job. Yeah, they did. Of, of putting it's a great grain. movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. And you cannot tell which is film, and which is digital. Yeah. So at some point, basically what you're saying is, and we might be there right now, you can produce everything that you could with film, with digital, with some sort of layering and editing and all sorts of stuff. At least as far as black and white goes. Yeah. So it just makes sense to, Yeah. I mean, shoot. It would probably, it sounds like it's probably cheaper than it is to shoot film. Oh my God. Yeah. So I'm thinking you're going to see more of this, that you're going to see yeah. more, more TV shows that are shot on film that are dropping it more movies that would normally be shot on film and they're dropping it. And the more they drop, the less Kodak's going to want to stick around. Possibly. I don't know. I always think that there's like the Tarantinos of the world, the purists, the people that feel like it, the film is film and that's what it is. That's possible. One of the things that Kodak could do to maybe curb our skepticism is best summed up by Jamie Maldonado. I understand where Kodak is coming from, but I also wish they could do something to assure customers that this is actually worthwhile or that it's actually going towards something very specific. That's a good question. Like, where is all of this leading? With 20% increases on a yearly basis, something more has to come from it. Um, obviously, I don't want to spend more money, but over the last 10 years, it's become increasingly clear that film is an expensive hobby with no signs of slowing down. So just have to take the good with the bad. Yeah. And taking the good with the bad is easier for those of us who have been around the film community for a long time. It might not be easy for the folks just getting into film. It's debatable whether Kodak has a captive audience with the current film community. Maybe they do. They probably do. I don't know. But they absolutely don't have that audience with people just getting into film. Kodak is an easy go-to, but if there are a number of other companies out there selling cheaper film for the newer, younger members of the community, Kodak won't be their automatic first choice anymore. When we talked to Danielle, that really weighed on her mind. 
I would say this is the part of the conversation that worries me the most. You know, new photographers to the film world are largely younger shooters who have far less earning capacity than generations prior to them and are saddled with far more financial burdens like student loan debt. And I am I am very worried that these price increases will very soon just make it untenable for younger and newer shooters to be able to continue affording film. She's not wrong. Considerably more young millennials and Gen Z adults have faced layoffs and struggle with food insecurities compared to other generations. As for student debt, the younger millennials and Gen Z are in the hole for much more than Gen X or boomers were, and the net worth of the younger generations is around 20% less than their parents. Essentially, this means less folding money for which to buy film, and Kodak should probably take notice of this. I feel like someone, when they're first getting into film, isn't going to go and immediately just reach for the most expensive film stock. And to be going through the process of learning and growing and experimenting and trying to figure out this medium, I think it's going to be hard for a lot of new photographers. The great thing the younger film shooters have is plenty of us ready to give our opinions, even if they didn't ask for it, and hacks that we have come across in the decades of shooting film. And Hannah, thank you for inviting your cat. We do really appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, But as Jamie points out, everything is expensive. Like everything now is expensive. And so he's thinking maybe Kodak can just sort of blend in. This is indeed a land of thousand dollar plus cell phones and stuff like that. So maybe $20 rolls of film are not as awful as people who paid $7 or $5 or even $2 for a roll of film uh, would think it is. I remember when a dime bag cost a dime. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Grandma. So Charlie pretty much says the same thing. Photography has always been expensive, even when it was less expensive than it is now, and people still got into it. Uh, Photography is still amazing, and I think people will want to get into it, will still continue to invest. Here, they also mention investment. I don't think they're just talking about financial, though. So, Vanya, how do you feel about photography as an investment? For me, personally, like, is it worth it? Yeah. Well, fucking obviously, (laughs) I do a podcast about it. (laughs) Yeah, we've got, you know, the investment we have in the film community and the the Mm -hmm. investment that we have in the podcast, which is definitely, well, it's definitely financial, but it's definitely emotional as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe the expensive film is the friendships we've made along the way. It's up to us, the film community at large, to take care of each other and make sure that everyone who wants has access to these things. So if we can help each other out and support each other and make sure everyone has access to reasonably priced options, then that's really the best thing. Mm, That's so sweet. Brandy's the best. And her message is refreshing. I wish more film photographers thought that way. Making sure that there are affordable options available is essential. There are tons of ways to cut corners, which we will go into later. But for now, let's have Jamie walk us through some alternatives. This price boost definitely has me looking more toward any alternative color films, which are pretty hard to find, but not impossible. They're Silbera. I really was impressed with their color 160 and 50. Those aren't cheap alternatives, but they are viable alternatives. Well, Blue Moon in Portland is selling Silbera color now. For a little cheaper than everybody else, too. They are. So Silbera is not 
cheaper than Kodak necessarily, and in some cases maybe a little more expensive depending on the emulsion, but it is an alternative. And that's important right now since we are literally questioning whether Kodak's gonna be able to keep making film. So, which I think they will, but still we're questioning it. Other color films out there, Orwo, who made a motion picture film, black and white, for, for years and years and years. They're kickstarting a a motion picture, a color motion picture film. I'm not sure how that's gonna go, but at the very least, they are hoping and seemingly planning to do a color ECN2 film. Was Ferrania supposed to do something too? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. About, I'm, I'm like, five... I feel like it's a fever dream now. It was like so long ago. I think it was about five years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I don't, so. I'm, I'm not counting on Ferrania at this point, but they have that plan. There's also Agfa has the ability to make some color film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're the ones, or somewhere in Germany in that area, are the ones that make the crossbird. Uh, don't gotcha. hold me to that, but it's somebody who's not the people that we've already mentioned. Um, this last year, I've really done a lot of exploring with the Lomography um, film stocks, both their standard color negative films and the Lomachrome series. And I've just, I've loved everything I've shot by Lomography. So I do think, especially in light of these price increases, I will probably lean more towards Lomography for my color film needs. Lomography is not just Kodak rebrands. The Metropolis, I don't think, is Kodak. It's not, is it? I don't think so. Yeah. But some are. Some definitely Well, same are. as like Cinestill, that's all. Yeah, Cinestill is all Kodak, all Kodak as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if Kodak raises their prices to, you know, to their wholesalers as well, like like Lomo and Cinestill, which I'm assuming they're mm-hmm. going to, that means, yeah. you know, Lomo isn't going to eat the, the rising cost. No, they'll have to charge yeah. more too. Yeah, and Cinestill is not going to eat it. So everything's going to be rising. Anything that is is associated with Kodak will, will, be, will be rising. And, you know- that's a bummer. That's that's all new color film that's readily available in the States. You know, yeah. There are some exceptions, but Kodak is kind of the go-to. Also, this is kind of the trend with everything that's in the market right now. There is a huge <laughs> impact happening because of, obviously, COVID and they're saying all kinds of stuff. Um, a lot of companies took hits, and so we're kind of having – the next couple of years is going to be rough for a lot of things. It'll be, but – well, I'm not seeing a price double. Are you getting a new car anytime soon? The price of a car has not doubled in the Gas. past four years. Gas has not doubled in the past four years. Toilet paper? Has not doubled in the past four years. <laughs> also, get a bidet, people. Why are we still using toilet paper? God, I wash. Don't, know don't how, smear. Like, yeah, but like, what do you, how do you dry after the bidet? Like, do you have a dryer down there too? Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Okay. Anyway. So, so far we've talked mostly about new film and toilet paper, but there is still a lot of old decaying expired film out there. Price changes have kind of pushed me into experimenting more with expired, which, you know, I don't hate it. I'm not mad at it. I've never really been the type of person to shoot expired. I, I like a natural color. I don't like not knowing what's going to happen. I mean, even though that is a part of photography, I like to have some idea. Like, I don't want to know that my shots are going to be pink instead of, like, I have a blue sky and green grass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's, yeah, that happens. We, we both shoot a lot of uh, expired color. Like, pretty much all yes. the color I shoot is expired. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is kind of a crapshoot sometimes. It can be magical. I'm shooting color in my uh, Pentax 
And I'm trying to kind of collect a bunch of 220. Yeah, that's all expired at this point. Yeah, all of it. It's not just expired film out there. There's also the whole bulk rolling ECN2 cinema film, uh, which is a lot cheaper. And Vision 3 250D is hands down my favorite color film. So there's that. Yeah, I used to love 250D. That was such a wonderful, wonderful emulsion to shoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get a, if you can get a roll of what, like a hundred foot roll of that, you're set for months. Yeah, that's 19 rolls there of 36. Yeah. It's, that's great. It's great. Yeah, bulk loading is is great. I used to do it when I shot 35. I was pretty much exclusively bulk loading. I even got some wonderful Varicolor 3 in bulk rolls. And that was, I think I still have one. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I'm taking Probably offers. give it to me. Probably give it to you. But what about photographers like Hannah Grace, whose work is dependent upon Kodak Portra? <sighs> Since I shoot large format, Portra 400 4x5 was my go-to, and I don't really know what alternatives I have at this point. So I'm not really sure where to go from here. I mean, could I go only to black and white? Probably, but that's not what I want to do. That sigh is so telling. I know. It's so like, I feel so sad. I hope Kodak's listening to this. Yes, Kodak, see what you're doing. (laughs) Don't make Hannah sad. I know I'm guilty of saying things like, well, just shoot black and white, you know, but it's, you know, it's, it's a very separate thing. It's a very separate branch of the same, you know, the same medium that we're doing here. If you don't see in black and white, I mean, you can still shoot in it, but you're, you're, you know, like she said, you're not going to get that enjoyment out of it. Yeah. I didn't realize it was like that for certain people. Um, we interviewed, I think it was Callie Frisky, and she she never has shot in black and white. And I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, because most people will start out, well, okay, most people who have had photos classes in, in high yeah, school, if you, which, if is, you're, which if yeah. you're old, you, <laughs> you start out shooting black and white, probably, you know, a bulk loaded Tri-X or bulk loaded Ultrafine or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, or old Arista, you know, most people shot the old Arista. Yeah. But that's, those days are gone and all digital cameras are at least, you know, natively a color. So it just yes. makes sense that you're used to seeing in color now. Yeah. I never, I didn't shoot any color unless it was my mom's uh, gold. Yeah. Everything else was black and white and mm-hmm. it was bulk loaded from school. You just said safety film on it. It was probably like Arista or some shit. Yeah. I'm glad that I can slide between the two. Danielle has been crunching some numbers and she discovered a really strange fact. Furthermore, I've actually really been getting into shooting dry plate amber types. And in doing some math the other night, I actually realized that dry plate amber types are actually cheaper than sheet color film. A box of 10 handmade silver gelatin glass plates runs about 40 bucks a box. Meanwhile, a box of 10 sheets of Portra 400 runs about $55. This is obviously for large format shooters, but it shows like how expensive color film is in 4x5. I, oh yeah, it's so expensive. I don't shoot it. And that's mostly because of the cost. I have some. I've been kind of stashing it away and hoarding it and I probably should use it honestly, but I, I don't I don't really like to either because yeah, it is kind of a risk for the price. Oh yeah. I have shot some color four by five, but it's mostly like these weird duplicating films. I think you've got a pack of that too. Mm-hmm. That Fujichrome duplicating at like three or six, six ISO. And it just like, I don't know. I've had some good luck with yeah. it. <laughs> and there's one, and I'm, I'm hesitant to mention this, but I think it's called like Kodak 4111 or 4114. 
And oh my God, the colors are just bonkers and weird. And I love it so much, but I rarely shoot in it because I think I'm learning to really see in black and white. And it's taken a long time to do that. I started in, in color. I started my first, mm -hmm. the first role that I shot, you know, when coming back to film was color. The first role that I developed was in color. I didn't get black and white developing for a very long time. That's so weird. It is. You're like the opposite. <laughs> I, I appreciate that Hannah shoots in color, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering like, like with Danielle, switching to maybe something like very old and archaic, like glass plates. I wonder how Hannah, I would love to see Hannah's working in glass plate. That would be a real yeah. interesting- Autochromes. Yeah, I, oh, or autochromes, sure. Maybe we could- <laughs> Hannah, Hannah we let's gotta... figure this out. <laughs> Photographers have shot budget emulsions and have really made them work. I can't think of anyone doing this better than Kat Swansea. She's the queen of the mom emulsion, but she's worried that maybe those aren't safe either. Um, if most newer film photographers don't decide to return to digital or whatever format they were shooting before turning to film, I think we'll see a lot of them start buying and possibly even hoarding the cheaper film stocks, making it harder for others to get their hands on it. In a perfect world, I'd continue to shoot budget films, but I'm not sure it's going to continue to be an option for me moving forward. So I'm just uh, adjusting as I go and time will tell. I've noticed that Kodak's Color Plus 100, which I guess is the mom emulsion now. Okay. It was not mentioned in the price increases. I can't imagine okay. that increasing it, but it wasn't mentioned. Hmm. Huh, so maybe it's just the professional films, like uh, like the portrait of the Ektar and- It's it's possible, yeah, yeah, it's possible. I guess I don't hmm. know where the, the line for professional and non-professional, unprofessional, irrational film is. I don't know where that line is. <laughs> I didn't shoot. I didn't shoot any Portra, Ektar, nothing until I came back to film. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I shot. I just. I shot black and white or mom emulsion. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Since day one. <laughs> and though it's not mom emulsion, and some people just don't want to shoot it, there is always cheap black and white. But also, there's black and white stuff like Foma and uh, yeah, lots of black and white stuff that's cheap and totally worthwhile. And it's fun to experiment with. So I think people should definitely look into that more. I don't really think there is such a thing as just black and white film. It isn't just like, oh, I don't like black and white. It's, well, what don't you like about it? Like, what emulsion mm -hmm. don't you like? Do you like, do you not like any of them? I mean, obviously there's the similarities that none of them are color, but there's <laughs> other things about it. Like I can look at a scene and say, mm -hmm. this would look good in this emulsion. This would look bad in this emulsion. You know, or this would even look good in this emulsion developed in this developer. Well, that's why it's really fun to photograph with Eric, <laughs> because he will say that even if you didn't ask, he'll he'll be saying all this stuff out loud. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's probably true. But if you do move to a new to you emulsion, whether it's cheaper or more expensive or just like a lateral financial move, usually there's some sort of change in your style. When I started shooting film again, I started with new color, but I did quickly move to expired color because I, I liked the look of it and that changed the style a little bit. It seems to to reflect what you're shooting as well. It's not like you're shooting these brand new scenes or something, you're shooting old things. So it kind of goes with your wor workflow, you know? I think you could probably w figure out a place for expired color in almost anything you're shooting. I mean, maybe not commercial or whatever, but may maybe, maybe there too. Uh, I did it. You did, yes. But and like black and white, there isn't just like one black and white look and there isn't just one expired film. 
when you talk about mm-hmm. expired film, you're talking about literally more color emulsions than are available now. Yes. You know, there's a huge difference between like you shoot a lot of Fuji rap, RAP. Yeah. Yeah. And I shoot. That's hit or miss. It is. And I shoot a lot of Kodak Veracolor, and, yes. which is honestly not hit or miss. That's pretty much hit. But there is, there's a huge difference in color emulsions, maybe even more of a difference than there is in black and white, but at least just as much. So shooting just like, oh, I don't like expired film. Like, well, you you haven't shot all of expired film, all the different emulsions. You, you haven't. So maybe there's something out there that you would like. Um, in the past, I've been really particular about consistency along collections, but now it's a little bit more clear that my stock is different. In a way, I think that's good because it keeps me from being such a rigid bitch about it and being a little bit more flexible to the magic of film. I would also like to send a shout out to Charlie's cat who meowed and then jumped up apparently. <laughs> Very cool. And going from a consistent look of like Fuji 200 or Portra 400 to literally any color as long as it's expired, that's a huge change. Yeah, it will be. With people scanning uh, software and manipulation that they can do on the computer, they can really make anything look like anything. There's a reliability in new film. Like if you shoot Portra 400 and develop it properly and shoot it properly, you know the look you're going to get. You know exactly what you're going to yep. get. If you shoot mm-hmm. expired Portra 400. NC or VC, <laughs> it might turn green. You, you don't know what you're going to get. Anyway, Here's Danielle to lead us forward. If I do lean more towards the Lomography color negative and Lomochrome stocks, I I actually don't think that will really affect the look of my work. The Lomography standard color negative films are some sort of base Kodak film they get wholesale. The look will be very, very similar to the work I produce on my Kodak stocks that I use. There's a similar look. And in the digitizing process with scanning or even in Photoshop, you can, like you said, you can nudge those colors a little bit in post here and there to get a more consistent look of your own. And since color film is almost always more expensive, a lot of photographers might find that it's easier and cheaper and maybe even preferable to switch to black and white. And that's assuming that it's something we all can do. Color is a big part of who I am as a photographer. And to lose that because of film stock price increases feels very upsetting for me. It feels like it would completely change the way I work and what my work looks like. And I don't know if it would feel like my work anymore. That's, I mean, can you, can you imagine shooting a photo and seeing the results and just feeling so disassociated with it that it's, it's not your work anymore? (laughs) I really hope not. I mean, there's definitely some photos that I've taken that I don't remember shooting. I think all of us are kind of Mm -hmm. guilty of that. I can look at them and go, oh, yeah, that looks like something I would do. Most of your pictures look like a picture you yeah, would take. Yeah, you know, I have, I have a, you know. You got a style. a style. And so does Hannah. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I mean, look, I'm not Hannah. And I'm certainly not telling Hannah what to do. I would love to see what she does with light and shadows on people's yeah, faces. Yeah, really Because she's a great she makes, takes some am- photographer. She takes some amazing so. portraits. And, you know, and like Brandy reminds us, again, there's not just a single black and white. But as far as like the look goes, certain black and white films for sure do yield much different results. I think more experimentation <laughs> is necessary. And with Danielle recently sliding into more glass dry plate embryotypes, that look is incredibly different from even normal black and white. But I just I find that very exciting. I, I love how different the look of the amber types are. 
So for me, that that kind of change from the standard that I have been creating the last couple of years is actually very exciting. And that's what photography really should be. It should be exciting, right? I mean, yeah, okay, it could be exciting, but I think a lot of people just want stability with their hobbies as well, you know, like, all right, I've been investing a lot of money in these cameras and getting them CLA'd and things like that. Like, it would be nice to know if I'll be able to afford film for them in the next 10 years. But it is kind of upsetting to not be able to use a tool that you've used and gotten used to and loved for years and now have to kind of like throw everything in the air and just see what happens and run with it. But in the end, maybe we either won't have to change much or can, like Charlie said, just just run with it. I don't think much will change for me outside of the numbers in my bank account. I've carved a niche for myself over the last two years, making photos shot on budget film look like they were photographed on professional grade films. I'll be spending more money each month, but I think my process and quality of work will remain the same for the most part. There's really no way around that. We're going to be spending more money to shoot film if we're sticking with it. If the cost of film keeps rising, all of us will have some difficult decisions to make sooner or later. Until then, most of us are looking for ways to cut costs. I have no idea how to cut costs with this kind of an increase. It's a lot of money and it adds up and I'm a graduate student right now and I'm commuting and trying to parent a two-year-old while balancing school and work and it's hard to try to justify that kind of a cost for something that right now is only for my enjoyment and doesn't bring anything to our family. When this is only adding joy to my life and nothing else, nothing financial, I don't know how I can continue to be okay with that when we need to put food on the table. So, The importance of finding things that we enjoy, even when they're isn't a financial benefit. I don't know if we can, that can be really overstated, right? You can still, it can still benefit you and your family, especially if it's something that you love, even if it's not bringing home the bacon, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I can only speak from my experience and of course not Hannah's or anyone else's for that matter. But when it comes to a job, yes, you're expected to monetize and provide income. I would love to be in the position where I could be working with film full time, but at this moment in life, it's just not really realistic. (laughs) So film for me is something I do for myself. Being a mother is wonderful, amazing, and kind of terrifying all at once. When I got into this field, (laughs) I dove kind of head first and committed to the role. And by doing that to the extreme, I had kind of like lost myself for a while. I had no identity anymore. I was a mom, maid, homemaker, uh, even a stepmother. possibly the most thankless job to have. So I suffered and it had taken me years to regain some of myself again. Film has made that happen. It's not for financial gain, but it was to help kind of feel like a person again. Well, you say it took years. So do you think if, if like early on, if you would have been able to somehow strike a balance between joy and responsibilities, uh, you'd be in a better place now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, again, I got into the game early. I was 22 when I met John and I decided to raise two boys. Jesus. (laughs) That were seven and nine. So 
it was it was intense. Uh, so yeah, I've raised I'm raising my third child right now, and of course everybody has advice for like mothers, but. Uh, something that I've always held really close to me um, that a counselor told me a long time ago was you put your oxygen mask on before you help anybody else. And that includes your children. So if you're in a plane and the oxygen mask comes out, even the flight attendants will tell you, you put your mask on first, take care of yourself before you take care of anybody else. Yeah. Now, hopefully, you know, as time goes on the next couple of years, we'll all be in better financial positions or have some amazing sugar mommies and daddies or maybe a bit of both. But even if we don't, even if there are no sugar parents out there, (laughs) there are things that we can all do to hopefully cut some costs. What am I doing to cut costs? Well, I have my schemes. I have been uh, bartering for processing for basically 100 years, and I'm going to continue to do that. Never discount the availability of luck and coincidence on whatever side hustles and schemes, oh, I love that word, you got going on. <laughs> well, yeah, you got, you got, you need some schemes in photography, I think. Film photographers are the schemiest of the schemes. Oh, I don't know about too. that. Like, they're but so we're, we're pretty, We're pretty schemey, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of bartering. I, I've, since yeah. I started doing zines, I've been into trading zines and, you know, I, I want to mm-hmm. do more of it. Yeah, I want to trade more film. I want to send out more film, too, to people. Um, I've been getting some film, and I'm like, I got to give some film away. Seriously. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that, it is It is nice to trade. We also, we've traded cameras. Yes. Yeah. Um, not necessarily for keeps, though I think you're probably owning my exactas at this point, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> I know. There's... Uh, <laughs> I- I did not have a good time shooting the exacta the last time. Well, now you know not to buy one. Look, I just saved you some money. And Thanks. one of the things that we can do, like Brandy talked a little earlier about, you know, helping us helping each other and, and ensuring that that there are if affordable ways to buy film. But also there's a lot of knowledge out there that once in a while, and maybe it's a little more than once in a while, people kind of complain about you know, like, oh, you're asking me for advice, but pay me for that advice. And I, I get God. the sentiment behind it, but I think it's wrong. Any YouTuber has like some sort of PDF file on something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't just like tell people stuff anymore. You have to make profit off of your advice. Yeah, I think knowledge should be free. Now, maybe, you know, I, I know that sometimes I'll wake up and there'll be 15 to 20 messages waiting for me. Yeah. And yeah. that's tough, but. It's overwhelming. I've. I've heard yeah, you be overwhelmed. It is a little it. overwhelming sometimes, but I never, I always try to give very thorough answers. I always try to give uh, friendly answers. I mean, do you ever like, do you ever message somebody a question about something and the re- response that you get is like a few words and not even like a, hey, or thank you, or I hope that helps. Let me know how it's going. Just like a few words that are very, just like, you know, kind of, like a way of saying, get the fuck away from me. Oh yeah. Bartering for processing works for Charlie and that's great. But if your local lab won't take a sack of barley in exchange for developing like Doc Baker from Walnut Grove, you might just have to do it on your own. Uh, Moving forward, I think I'll begin developing at home to save even more money and help offset those price increases. Now we do an entire podcast about developing on your own. So we're not gonna talk a ton about that here, but- Developing black and white, especially, and developing color too, whether it's C41 or ECN2, maybe maybe ECN2, is pretty easy. 
I highly recommend anybody that's shooting film at least tries to develop a roll of film just to see the magic. Chems are easy to get. Pretty much any place you buy film will have chemicals. There's a ton of YouTube videos out there on how to do it. There are at least a couple of episodes of Dev Party that walk you through it very easily. Yes. And also it's just magic and fun. It is magic and fun. (laughs) Uh, I think I might have to really just suck it up and start developing my own color now and even um, slide film. I have the chems. I just have been too scared to do it myself, but I suppose this would be just the push. (laughs) I I can't imagine Brandy developing slide film. (laughs) No, wait, I can. She did it in my kitchen. Yeah, she did. Yeah. You should be able to imagine that. That's, that seems to be like something that you'd be able to imagine. <laughs> but oh developing boy. color, I started developing color. That was the first thing I ever developed was color film. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's exacting. It's not difficult. There's one, one formula for it, one recipe. It's very easy to do. Yeah, it's like baking bread, yo. <laughs> Way easier than baking bread. Now, when you have your film developed at a lab, most of them will offer to scan the negatives for you for a price. But if you're maybe a a bit iffy on developing your own film, and again, you should not be iffy on that, but if you are, maybe you can at least say, hey, you know, I'll scan those on my own, like Kat's doing. Up until six months ago, I sent all of my film to a lab to be processed and scanned. I recently purchased a scanner and cut my costs in half, which has opened the door for me to put that money towards other things like buying more film and purchasing gear. Yeah, scanners aren't cheap, but a regular film scanner like for 35 millimeter isn't too expensive. And there are ways to do it. I used to kind of do the same thing. Uh, I would send my film or I'd drop off my film at this place called Rose Photo um, on Lincoln here in like Venice, Santa Monica area. And it was like $5.99 and $6.99 for just develop only. That's it. And so I would just go have them process my negatives and then I would bring them home and scan them myself. And it was great. Yeah. Scanning's not cheap. It's, and it's, you know, it's, it's a long process. It's kind of a pain in the ass. Yes, I, I do enjoy I it. I hate it. I hate I it. I enjoy it. Ugh. I enjoy scanning 120 and I especially enjoy scanning four by five. I despise it. (laughs) (laughs) But regardless of which things you're doing or not doing, it's likely that you'll save more money if you just stop blowing through so many rolls. I'll definitely do more of what makes film so great in that I will think more before I shoot. Yeah, we could do an entire season (laughs) of the podcast on shooting more deliberately, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. I know that when I started shooting large format, it really helped me shoot more deliberately with 35 millimeter and 120, especially with Absolutely. 120. Uh, and at this point, yes. I'm, I'm almost treating 120 like it's it's large format. I'm always going back to Hannah for some reason, but uh, well, she was our first. She was our first guest. So she gets a little she bit was. of special treatment here. And I'm wondering if she maybe does. like a big 120 camera, like the, I don't know, RB67, would be an interesting replacement for her. Because she shoots hmm. a Graflex. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't mm-hmm. bother so much with movements or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm wondering if maybe like a, an RB67 would be a good, a good way to lower the cost. The negatives are still pretty big. Yeah. And the format, you know, the, the 6x7 is very similar to 4x5 in, in ratio. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, maybe. Could work. Maybe. maybe. I have another idea here. 
if you shoot like digital SLRs or, you know, even just with your phone, instead of taking a ton of pictures with 35 or a ton of pictures with 120 even, maybe use your phone to frame and shot and, and test it out. Kind of like hybrid shooting. We like hybrid shooting. You take a bunch of them and then, and then finalize it with film. Do you take your, take your last yeah. shot? Like, oh, you take a bunch of shots on digital and you pick out the one that you like and go, I'm going to take that one on film and go, and go yeah, do that. Yeah, I do that. So like Marley, for instance, she, she had a, like three different Halloween costumes this year, which was great. I love it. <laughs> so I took pictures for her with my phone, you know, just like, here's the pictures you want for your phone. And then now you have to sit for me <laughs> and I get my film pictures. So a little bit of both. Yeah, exactly. And you know, when all else fails, just listen to Danielle. And I guess I'm going to really emphasize that I really just want film for all Christmas and birthday presents from here on out. And hopefully that will help as well. We asked Blue Moon Photo if they were afraid that price increases would drive customers away. I say yes and no. Whenever anything gets more expensive, it increases the chance that it's either going to price some people out of it or people are going to evaluate the, the higher cost of their hobby or, or pastime or, or what have you. Oh my God, I just had this like, a like, whoa. Could you imagine if people were like, okay, yeah, I only want to shoot Portra and it's just too much. I got to get rid of this Leica Mamiya 7 whatever, like all those like crazy expensive cameras because they're just like, you know what? I don't shoot this anymore. I'm just going to shoot digital. Maybe film cameras will go down again. <laughs> so we asked Brandy, Charlie, Danielle, Hannah, Jamie, and Kat, in alphabetical order, apparently, when they thought it might be too much for them. When is it going to be too expensive to shoot film? Well, now, really, but it's not that easy to break an addiction. So I don't know what to tell you. Yes, photographers, we're going to have to make some changes to keep feeding this addiction. The changes mostly financial, can either come from outside of photography, like literally anything else we do, or from within photography. If we don't, well, well, there's, there's Hannah. This may be the end for me pretty soon. I really hope not. But if it's going to keep increasing like this, then I don't really know what other options I have. As Blue Moon pointed out, Kodak and other film companies have been raising their prices significantly every year. This can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but there's one option that many newer and younger film shooters will probably be more willing to accept. Film has already become too expensive for the average photographer. I'm noticing more and more photographers that I interact with on social media are returning to digital because film is no longer attainable or worth the cost to them. Whether digital meets your artistic or stylistic needs is up to you. But I mean, all right, Vanya, would, would you go back to digital? The reason why I got into this so deeply, <laughs> obsessively, is because I like old things and I like making old things still be useful. I think that's the most important thing for me. So if there was a way to continue to use it, if film died out completely, but someone was like, oh, I made this digital back so you can still use your old lens and your old camera. Absolutely. Really? Okay. If film didn't exist, I would start pouring my own plates, to be honest. That's what, that's what oh, I would do. Oh, of course. Do. I never really shot digital. It was never really a thing for me. I mean, I use my phone, of course. But other than that, I don't think I would do it. I may find a different hobby 
you know, because pouring plates sort of suck. Like doing wet plate photography is kind of a pain. It's beautiful, yeah. but it is sort of a pain. So hopefully it, it sticks around. Like we mentioned at the start, a five pack of Portra will clock in at around $70. For Danielle, that's not quite too much, at least not yet. For me, I guess if we see the day where that price range for like a five pack hits the 90 to $100, that might be when I need to really bow out of shooting any Portra. If I just, I don't know if I can really justify paying, you know, 90 to $100 for a five pack. So hopefully we don't get there. Hopefully these price increases start settling down at some point, but you know, Kodak, I guess has to do what they got to do. And and we as consumers also have to do what we got to do. Yeah, Kodak's got to do what Kodak's got to do and Kodak's going to do what Kodak does. I think, however, if Kodak has another substantial cost increase like this, they better think long and hard about it or like bring back Kodachrome or something like that because it's definitely becoming an issue that they need to give us something more in return than what they've just been giving us the whole time. So what would you, Vanya, like to see Kodak do more of? More involvement in the film community. Like, we kind of started seeing that a little bit. Like, one of my friends, Pete, he was doing, like, Kodak photo walks, which I thought was so cool. You know, you get a bunch of people, like, people just starting out shooting film, old people that used, you know, that have been shooting film for years, and you go on, like, a photo walk. I thought, I think that's so cool. Yeah. It would be, it would be awesome to, like, open up these factories and get people to kind of learn about, like, I mean, Kodak has a lot of history. They do. Over a hundred plus years of history. I think they could tap into that. I mean, this is a company that's been around for quite some time. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's it's in America anyway, it's synonymous with photography. Absolutely. The other option for Kodak is just stop making film. Charlie is curious about this one. What I'm more worried about though is when all these companies are going to completely pull film out from under us, then what are we gonna do? I don't think Kodak is going to discontinue film altogether. I don't think that's going to happen, at least not for a very long time. So the extreme that we have to deal with here, and especially in the immediate, is that film just becomes too expensive in general. And Brandy speaks to this. It's a much more depressing thought to think that film wouldn't be a part of my life in some way if I have to start getting more creative with getting it or developing it or scanning it if I have to trade with people or sell some things. <laughs> um, I would hope that film is always a part of my story. It does seem like film will be with us for a while, but the panic is kind of already setting in. I mean, we're talking about this. We devoted a whole episode to it. It's probably just a knee-jerk reaction to the latest price increases. But if that trend keeps going on like this year after year, the knee-jerk reaction just becomes the new normal. At least that's how Kat sees it. I think the real problem we're facing is how easy or often we'll be able to get our hands on film moving forward. The recent news of the price increase felt eerily similar to the pandemic and people hoarding toilet paper, unfortunately. Uh, film is almost impossible to buy online right now, and eBay sellers have started price gouging on basic film stocks like Color Plus and Kodak Gold. I've also seen a lot of posts online about people stocking up now before the prices get any higher. I've heard from a lot of people who are stocking up and hoarding, if you will. That's kind of sort of always been a thing in the film community because we are just so used to things just 
being taken away from us <laughs> when, at any moment. But if there's a substantial price increase each year, this could be the new normal as well. For me, it's hard to get used to the idea that film is just going to increase 10 to 20% each year. And in the end, Kodak is Kodak. They exist to make money for their shareholders, not to make film. And as our esteemed listener, Jess, points out, I'm not going to simp for Kodak. It's a huge corporation, and it'll do what huge, aging corporate entities do, which is blunder along until it can't extract enough profit to exist. Then it'll implode as other companies strip out any remaining IP of value. Even if film photography continues its resurgence, it's still a small pond compared to the ocean it was up until about 2000 or so. But it certainly feels like color film is hanging on by a thread. Eventually, the casual shooter is going to be priced out. When photography started, it was complex, and for professional photographers only. Plates and film holders, they were just a pain in the ass. But then Kodak came along and introduced the snapshot, making photography available to basically everybody. But now photography is even more available. We all carry cameras with us constantly. If Kodak's original goal, apart from making money, was to make photography available to the masses, then mission accomplished, and probably forever, will forever be under the constant eye of a camera somewhere. Film photography, then, was simply a means to an end. That means is, for all intents and purposes, obsolete. There is no practical, utilitarian reason to shoot film. For those purposes, we have digital. Film photography is now a hobby, or if you don't like that word, an art. We probably need to think of it as such from here on out, regardless of what the prices are doing or which emulsions are being discontinued. If you're listening to this podcast, then I hope that you keep shooting film. Or if you're just thinking about it, I hope you pick it up. But like any art, it may not be for everyone. I'm not an evangelist for film photography. If you want to shoot it, I'll help you out. If you don't, that's fine with me. You don't see oil painters trying to recruit digital artists into painting on canvas. Sure, everyone likes to think that their own loves are right for everyone else, but maybe film photography just isn't for you, and that's okay. But if you're going to stick around, you're probably going to have to get used to the price hikes. As Blue Moon notes... Kodak's been doing annual price increases for the past several years. This isn't really anything new at all. Ilford actually generally does an annual price increase as well. So we are soon going to see an announcement from them as well, just like we did last year and the year before that. I, like many photographers, are trying to find what would be the best way to keep this film photography hobby going. Just like all things, inflation has really been squeezing us. We have started buying bulk, expired, developing ourselves by investing in the scanner, you know, all of that. Unless you're lucky enough to be in tech or bored with a silver spoon, you're kind of stuck with the rest of us just trying to get by with our lovely film obsession. <laughs> I remember saying in episode three or four that I can picture myself with long gray hair, smile lines from decades of sun exposure, shooting wet plates, hopefully in my overalls. That seems so far in the future, but what am I waiting for? Film prices? Check. Gray hair? Check. <laughs> Weathered sun exposed skin? Double check. One thing I will say about us as a community, we are kind of survivors. If you are listening to this, you're in deep, as deep as me. You have also been savvy as fuck. Digital photography has dominated the market for like 20 years, and yet here we are. We don't lack determination and resourcefulness. 
A lot of photographers have found other mediums, such as wet plates, dry plates, cyanotypes, etc. We are the preservers of these tools. If we don't purchase film anymore, it would eventually fade away. There is always the newest iPhone or the latest model of something, and as consumers, the market has decided for us that we are a disposable society. Your great-grandchildren will probably not be able to turn on that Sony mirrorless camera because it wasn't built to survive, like the Leicas and Graflexes of our grandparents' time. And I know I've said this like five trillion times on the podcast, but film photography has saved me in more ways than I could possibly explain. As a stranger in a new town, I always relied on my camera to be my shield. As that awkward teenager, my companion. On an adventure so I wasn't so lonely, and a creative way to experience life and see it in all its glory. The good, the bad moments. Document what's important to me, see what the world has to offer, and a way to participate in the human condition all through a lens. As long as there is film, there will be film photography zines. Ho- hopefully. I would assume those wouldn't go away. And we absolutely love zines. We, we review at least two zines every episode, and this episode is no different. Vanyo, what zine do you have for us this episode? Everything is So Beautiful Today by Stephanie Gonzalez. Everything So Beautiful Today is a half-size zine saddle stitch that holds about 37 pages of her color and black and white street photography. This is a really great collection of photographs. You can kind of tell that she knows how to make zines, you know what I mean? (laughs) I almost want to say it's like a no-nonsense zine. It's just like so well put together with no words, no frills, just really good photography. Uh, In the description on her Etsy page, she writes, seeing things clearly or seeing things like new. You can check out her scenes and her work on her site, which is kind of the best ever. It's gonzography.com. Gonzography. Brilliant. (laughs) So what are the photos like in the scene? She has a very wonderfully unique eye. Um, I'm actually showing Eric some of the pictures right now. Yeah, very grungy. It's got a little bit of grunge. She has a lot of fun perspective in here, yeah. a lot of unique angles to things. And it really just makes a difference. You can see, you could tell. We'll have it in the show notes. You can definitely check it out. Yeah. All right, Eric. Well, now we heard from Charlie Camigula just moments ago. Hey, Lens Baby. And now they're back with a new zine. For those who don't know, Charlie runs Themselves Press. We had them on for episode 41. It's a good listen. Go back and check that out. The new zine called The Need for Restlessness was shot in Uruguay on color film, Fuji Superior, 200-400. The photos show a nearly desolate and abandoned town. It's mostly exterior shots focusing upon architecture, but there are full spread cityscapes and a few interiors. There's also a cat. There is a cat. Thank you for that. I realize it wasn't just for me, per se, uh, but still, it's appreciated, per se. Get it? I didn't even mean to do that. I'm <laughs> oh. cat puns. What's fun is that, like the pharyngeal jaw of a moray eel, or a xenomorph, Charlie included a mini zine tucked within the zine itself, <gasps> tucked in the pocket on the title page. This one-page mini zine contains eight more photos and a secret message on the back detailing part of the trip and some of the shooting. 
There are a few copies left at themselvespress.com, and you should do what's right and pick one up. <laughs> All Through a Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting books, our newspaper.com for research, audio equipment, and much, much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support because we couldn't do it without you. If you like bonus episodes and do full-length interviews and extra nonsense, you can become a patron subscriber. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. Mm, so head over to patreon.com slash all through a lens for more info. And thank you to our new patrons, Adam B, Grandpa Skip, Paul F, and Dave. Live all Dave all night. Whoa! Hey, Vanya. <laughs> yes. What does your next week look like? Film photographically oh speaking. And you wrote a little bit, but I think that may have changed. I, okay, yeah. So I wrote some notes of things that I wanted to do next week. <laughs> That's not happening. Have a little bit of an emergency. My sister's in Maui with COVID and she has a baby. She's about a year and a half now and she's stuck. She can't come home. So I'm going to sacrifice for this family and fly out to Maui to take care of her daughter while she quarantines. It's tough, but someone's got to do it, you know? Someone has to go to Maui, you know? <sighs> Trips being paid for, rooms being paid for, first-class tickets. I mean, God, that's, it's going to be rough. It's so rough. Are, are you going to be okay? <sighs> I mean, honestly, though, uh, I haven't taken care of a baby for a long time, so I'm not exactly sure. But, of course, I'm bringing the Nikonos. <laughs> And now your sister has been vaccinated, so this is a breakthrough. And so her symptoms and her, her suffering will probably be statistically a lot easier to deal with than most people's. Absolutely. So she's going to be okay. Yeah, she's going to be fine. I'm just, you know, the baby doesn't have it. So I'm going to be in a room with her, just basically taking care of her for the next 10 hopeful, healthy days. <laughs> if not, then I live in Maui now. <laughs> so next episode... <laughs> Might be just me there now. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I, I nothing that interesting. There is an Imogene Cunningham exhibit at Seattle Art Museum. And, you know, I, I don't know when I'm going to see that. I would like to go see that on a weekend. Mm -hmm. It'd be kind of cool to meet up with some people and maybe do that. I don't know who in Seattle is listening to this, but that's a possibility that I'll probably back out of. In true Seattleite fashion. You got free. <laughs> I do have a new issue of In This Land coming out. Uh, it will be available to Patreon subscribers first, uh, and then it'll be available to everybody. And I'll talk more about that in the next episode. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this one. I'm always excited about them, but I'm just as excited about this one. So, That is all the show we've got for you today. So tune in next week for dev party but that's going to be a little odd since half of us won't be developing i we had a plan yeah. we had an original plan to do fx1 and then we scrapped mm -hmm. that because that's um let's well, scrap it we postponed it because that's mm -hmm. a lot of work and we we are we're kind of over, we're kind of inundated with work right now and we decided yes. to just do a roll of film from the camera exchange 
You mm-hmm. borrowed my Mamiya 645 and I borrowed your Puzzle Blood 500C. Puzzle Blood. Mm-hmm. And well, since we can't do that, we're not doing that. <laughs> so I think what we'll do is- Check up on me. <laughs> See if I'm doing okay. That's exactly <laughs> While what you we'll develop do. film. I will be developing, you will be cheering me on and I will be talking to you all yes. about developing FX1. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I ordered you some FX1 developer. You don't seem to be able to find it at this point. I think my dog ate it. It's a great thing to feed to a dog. Dogs love yeah. it. So mm-hmm. I will be developing something in FX1 and going over that. So tune in next week to see a very one-sided, they're not completely one-sided dev party and hear how Vanya is doing. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I'm not sick and everything's good (laughs) hopefully uh vanya do you have anything else to say before we let these fine people go yes thank you so much you guys for listening to all through a lens if you'd like to contact us we're at all through a lens dot podcast on instagram by email it's all through a lens dot podcast at gmail.com and we're at all through a lens on twitter i guess you can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag yourself, hashtag allthroughalenspodcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search All Through a Lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcast. Subscribe to us and leave us a review. We haven't gotten a review in a long time, so see what you can do. <laughs> the music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you next week at Dev Party. Yes. Do you want to go to Maui and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. (laughs) Oh, have fun. I mean, Veracolor, they don't make Veracolor. They don't do 220 anymore, which sucks for me. Well, that was a long time ago. That was. uh, No, it wasn't. 220? Yeah, it was. Like 2005, 2006. It's, it's 15 years. Shut up. It was, <laughs> it was two years ago, okay? <laughs> Damn it. That happens to me all the time. It's driving me nuts. Okay. <laughs>